Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 3 to one go with Cosmo Macero. Then Senator Jack Reed joins us for an interview and two minutes with Tom. First up, 3 to one go Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we're coming up on a U.S. Census year and accurately counting the residents of Massachusetts is especially difficult. We'll explain. And our own Suzanne Morse talks to Kyan Isaacson about a real issue nonprofits are now facing in Boston being priced out and forced out of their office space by escalating rents. Finally, a respected Harvard University professor has an epiphany in the shower about aliens, and he's immediately subject to ridicule in the astrophysics community. We'll explain. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, have you ever been subjected to ridicule based on something you thought about in the shower? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I don't know what it is, but probably. Yeah. A lot of people do a lot of good thinking in the shower. Sometimes... Getting ready for the day, you know? You want to keep that stuff in your back pocket until it's ready to, for public consumption. All right. All right, Kyan. Every 10 years, U.S. Census takers hit to the streets to... Uh, perform the accurate uh, and official count of the U.S. population. We're coming up on that. Massachusetts has an interesting um, uh, sort of diverse dynamic among its population in terms of the difficulty in performing that count. A lot of immigrants, college students, renters, it makes it actually one of the most difficult states. I think city, in terms of municipalities, Boston has one of the lowest rates of census return. Um, and there's a couple of different factors. Uh, Bill Galvin kicked off a census event in Framingham this week. Um, he says people, particularly immigrants, might shy away or, I think his words, be terrified when someone comes to their door from the federal government taking, <laughs> trying, asking all kinds of questions. I don't know if that's an overstatement or not, but it's certainly an interesting dynamic. And then, of course, college students, renters and such, people from all over, um, who are temporary temporary um, uh, residents of Massachusetts uh, makes it complicated. What do you think? Not surprised. Something I never thought of before, but certainly not surprised. I think um, the addition of the possible citizenship question that the president is proposing be added will certainly add a whole other level of about citizenship. Yes. Yeah. Um, of of fear, I'm, I'm sure, for, for many. And then there will be others that, in sort of protest of the question, won't answer either. Um, so it's unfortunate because those numbers help make decisions for our country for federal funding, for the House of Representatives. You know, the census is there for a reason. Yeah. Um, and the more people we get to respond, quite honestly, the better. Um, but... Yeah, we have a transient population here. Yeah. Operationally, the census is moving to more of an online count, digital count rather than on paper, which certainly makes sense. But that's another, it's it's easier to 
be not responsive, right? It's easier to be not responsive. There's also people that are going to be skeptical because it's online. Like Big Brother watching is that, you know, yeah. there's, there's, however, it, it makes total sense. We're in a world where we're ideally trying to move almost everything online for ease. Uh, then you come up against people who, you know, don't have internet um, or don't know how to use a computer. Uh, there are going to be follow-ups. People will get mailed forms if they don't respond online. So there are multiple ways one can respond to the census. But the citizenship question, I think, is going to hang in the, as it hangs in the balance, is going to dictate a lot. There's going to be people out of fear who won't answer it. And then again, as I said, others that will, won't answer it out of protest. The president says the census is meaningless without asking about citizenship status, which I think is pretty interesting. I think that's a little excessive, but... <laughs> Massachusetts now, almost 7 million residents, up to 6.9 to be exact, or roughly exact. Uh, that's a 5% increase in 10 years. That's actually significant. There's not a lot of states in the Northeast that are growing. Massachusetts is one of them. I can tell you, uh, traffic alone, I'm not surprised. Yes, yes, absolutely. We've, we've certainly absorbed the increased capacity that the big dig gratefully gave us, uh, and then some. Yes. But uh, certainly that's right true. Right now we're needing a bigger dig. Not that, I re- not that I think we should actually do one, but we don't have enough space on our roads. As a former... <laughs> Uh, as a former newspaper reporter, journalist, uh, the census is just a, a treasure trove of ideas, of story ideas, of information, the database. Uh, it's a fascinating thing. I always look forward to it because of that. You learn so yeah. much about America, so much about the country and about, about the trends. So that, that, that's and, – and, and you can mine that – literally will mine that data for years and years and years afterwards. So it's pretty exciting. Anyway. Um, I guess that's a nerdy thing for me to say. All right, Cayenne, thanks. (laughs) That's okay. Hi, Suzanne. Hey, Cayenne, how are you today? Good, thanks for joining us for 321 Go and stepping in. I always enjoy being on 321 Go. Cosmo uh, thought that you would be a better person to chat about this. I think he's right. No offense, Cosmo. (laughs) Um, so Tim Logan this week had a story in the Boston Globe about nonprofits being, quote, squeezed out of Boston offices as rents surge. Uh, you and I both do a lot of work with nonprofits. And That's we've right. seen this. We've seen our clients move in recent months. Absolutely. Um, I thought it was a really interesting article, partly because I just think it's actually interesting to see uh, the Globe do a story on the intersection of these two important sectors. Uh, the nonprofit sector is an important part of the New England economy and and just the fabric of the culture. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So to you know, we we hear a lot of stories right now on Boston's hot real estate market and how it's impacting things like housing, but we aren't thinking about how it's also impacting other parts of the way the city works. And, you know, this was a really interesting um, look at the impact on nonprofits and it's pretty considerable. So we do spend a lot of time, and the Globe spends a lot of time, talking about the lack of available housing yep, <laughs> that is true. not affordable. Not um, This is sort of basically taking that and moving it over to the commercial side and saying there's also a lack of affordable rental space for these places that can't afford um, big yeah. rents. And, you know, 14 Beacon Street is mentioned in the story. Uh, it, it's, it was. It, it housed so many. Mm-hmm. It was sort of this like iconic little place that um, I think nonprofits always felt like they could call home. 
and not really anymore yeah and in that i don't people may not realize how important that building was i mean a lot of the nonprofits that were in that building were real small they were doing really important social service work or advocacy work and that building is right across the street from the state house so it's accessible by T. Exactly. And if you are a small three or four person nonprofit trying to get your message heard within the state house, to be able to just literally walk across the street and go and visit your legislators, that was important. And it's a huge loss for the nonprofit community, I think. And also, the idea you, you take that one step further it's not having to deal with parking yeah not, you know these also are not the highest paying jobs mm-hmm. um in a lot of cases so not having to ask people to come in pay to park 40 some odd dollars um for a meeting or for an event or, yeah. or whatever it is um and that it's just gone i mean it's sad yeah. it's sad it's anecdotally sad and logistically just really unfortunate um, because 14 Beacon is, it was mentioned in the story, it's one we know well, but it's not the only place. That's true. Um, there's a lot of others that have been forced out and are trying to find places and uh, are having to go to the suburbs. And that changes that changes the culture of where you work, too, um, and the kind of people you can recruit. And for them, for donors, uh, volunteers, I think the volunteer component is really big, having access of, you know, whether it's volunteers or interns, mm-hmm. being able to get to you. If you're in the suburbs, that that may not be feasible anymore. I also just thought it was really interesting because, you know, when we talk about the nonprofit sector, generally people are talking about mission. And, you know, that's obviously important. Every nonprofit has a mission that they're trying to promote. But space is important, too. Facility is important, too. And as we're thinking about how Boston and Massachusetts is changing through all the growth that we're experiencing, um, the notion that these that nonprofits can't find quality space, which does have an impact on your ability to attract top talent and all that kind of stuff. It's an interesting challenge. And one thing we actually haven't noted before we wrap up is that the people they're serving are here. And not all of them, but many of them, or at least have access to get here, perhaps easier than a suburb. And what does that mean for clients uh, Mm -hmm. that these nonprofits are really doing this amazing work for. Yeah, especially for social services agencies. Yep, I think it's a real question as 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 Boston changes. It's a real question for a lot of different sectors, but I was happy to see it, uh, the focus on the nonprofit sector because I think it was an important uh, undertold story. Agreed. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Cayenne. All right, Cayenne, Abby Loeb is the chairman of Harvard University's renowned astronomy department. Um, And uh, so, you know, respected, highly regarded. You don't get to be the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard by not being respected and highly regarded. Um, Recent story says he likes to do his best thinking in the shower. He came up with tremendous ideas for papers on black holes, the future of the universe, and... um, Something called Oumuamua, a mysterious object. I'm not going to even try and say it again. Say it three times fast. I'm, not, I'm just going to say it. I said it that one time. Now I'm going to just call it that phenomenon. That, that thing. That thing. It's a mysterious object that hurled close to Earth in 2017, became an instant sensation in the scientific community. Papers were published. Theories were developed. 
And Avi Loeb developed his own theory. It was co-authored by a researcher named Shmuel Bialy in an article for the Astrophysical Journal Letters, and it suggested that this phenomenon, this thing, was structure. sent... Well, this structure was some sort of deliverable coming from a uh, from another... Extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial civilization. Extraterrestrial civilization. Yes. Aliens. Yes. Alien to us. Yes. Aliens. Um, and, uh, you know, it was met with great interest and touched off considerable um, outrage and ridicule. His colleagues in the scientific community really went after him and uh, said all kinds of things. Now, what are your thoughts on this? Because I'm thinking, okay... As long as it's, if the criticism is coming from within the same highly regarded scientific community, then then, then those are his intellectual peers. Yes. Otherwise, hey, you know what? Who am I to question the chairman of the Harvard University? The super smart guy? The super smart. I'm not questioning <laughs> the guy. I'm like, wow, that guy from Harvard says there's aliens. Exactly. I'm all in. What's the deal? If you're his intellectual peer... I got it. And his yes. intellectual peers are saying, slow down. Here's the thing. I believe at one point in time, all scientists who came up with huge discoveries were regarded as crazy. Of course. Or out of left field. Or that their you know, theories had no basis in truth and fact. Um, and many of them came true. So, you know, someone's got to step out on a limb and, and say the thing. Um and apparently he decided that he was going to be it. Kudos. If this is what he believes, put it on paper. Put it out there. Let the community discuss. Apparently there's concern about, guilt, about you know, th this rubbing off on others. Within Harvard Center for Astrophysics, uh, and Loeb built his reputation there as a prolific researcher. Um, there's mixed opinions about the report. People are concerned that just affiliating with it, um, and I guess his co-author, um, this uh, Bialy guy has kind of shunned uh, the spotlight around it, but people are being concerned with even being affiliated with it. What I think is funny is some of the criticism is not what you would think. I mean, it's not necessarily these his peers saying, oh, how silly, how ridiculous, there's no such thing as aliens. They're basically just saying, well, no, you, this, your this theory's wrong. This thing wasn't yeah. from aliens. This, yeah, this thing's not from aliens. Very, very, very narrowly. Like you're just wrong about this. Well, what's really interesting is he actually says that, in his opinion, this is not the most outrageous writing that he has produced. He thinks that, in looking back on his papers over the years, that this is not the like the biggest stretch. Which is, I want to read the rest of his papers. I know, now. really. I know. Also, so we have to ask the question: What do you think? Do you believe? I, I just. The the, the 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 vastness of the universe suggests to me that it's it's improbable that there is nothing nothing out there that's some some form of life uh, mm -hmm. and, and 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 you know life could be some amoeba type organism uh, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say intelligent life but it just seems unlikely that it's something so vast could could only hold one form of life or even or even one civilization yeah that were the special ones yeah yeah but 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 i know there are many 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 
in the scientific community, meaning actual trained astronomers who would who would say, no, no, you're you're wrong. There's no way that's that, that's possible. I, I just I just I don't know enough about the science uh, to make an informed opinion. So mine's generally just kind of uh, loosely informed based on my own logic. How about yourself? Um, agreed. When I was 13, um, I remember asking my dad after watching, I think it was the movie Contact or something, if uh, he thought that there were aliens and we were getting ready to go on vacation. And he said, when we get to the beach and one night you look out at the sky and you see all these stars in this like infinite universe, you tell me, do you really think that, that we're it? And that has stuck with me for 20 plus years. So I'm going with that. But he never answered the question. No, see, he's smart like that, right? <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. All right, Cayenne, thanks a lot. Another action-packed episode is in the books. Three, two, one, go. That's it. That's going to do it for this week's edition. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's it for 321 Go. Up next, Tom interviews Senator Jack Reed. Jack Reed, what a thrill to have you here. Tommy, it's a pleasure being with you as always. I've Thank known you, you a long while. I've known you a long while. You you were in the Congress on the House side. Good. It has to I be a was on the of- House uh, side. Your dad had uh, just uh, left. Tom Foley was the speaker. Tom Foley, yeah. But one of my great thrills was meeting your father at the St. Patrick's Day dinner. Uh, the guest to sit lunch, and the guest was President George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah, and that was a very special evening. As, oh, it was great. Yeah, it's great. In yeah. fact, I recall President Bush was uh, uh, told a great story. He said, "You know, it's a tradition on St. Patrick's Day to break bread with both saints and scholars." And he paused for a minute. He said, "Obviously, I have to make two more stops." <laughs> 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 oh, I love it. You know. Um, you know, I've watched you from, from afar over these last uh, dozen years while you've been in the U.S. Senate, and you've really, I think, set yourself aside and apart from your counterparts, frankly. Uh, you, you just kind of very quietly move through the process of government to make things happen. And, and you know, you're really kind of a go-to U.S. senator, to be perfectly honest with you, on the Democratic front, mm-hmm. trying to work both sides of the aisle and make it work in a progressive fashion just to keep government going. Well, uh, it's a bipartisan institution by definition, particularly the Senate, because the, the minority has influence that they don't have in the House of Representatives. So mm-hmm. to get anything truly accomplished, it has to be bipartisan. And I've had a tremendous cooperation from some of my colleagues. And, you know, I had the distinct honor and privilege of working closely with Senator John McCain. I was the ranking Democrat, and he was the chairman of the committee. And... Uh, although he continually kidded me about not having a college education since I went to West Point, <laughs> and, and he was a Naval Academy graduate. Yeah. Uh, beside the kidding, there was a mutual respect. I certainly respected him. He's a great American hero. And we worked together on many issues, and then working on, the, on other issues with other colleagues across the aisle. Um, we just, Shelley Moore Capito and I from West Virginia just did last year a, a bill on pediatric cancer. The first time we've really at NIH have a, have a specialist on their cancer board mm-hmm. making policy, and then more research into pediatric cancers. And that's the example of 
quiet, but I think long-term, very effective things that we can do. You know, I know you were very close to John McCain. There's a lot being said about John McCain yeah. on, on, on both sides yes. of the philosophical yeah. spectrum. It, um, it's kind of a shame about what President Trump has been uttering these past few days. But it is, it is. It's, 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 it's completely inappropriate, and that's being very judicious. Uh, just, you know, the, the, again, the, the idea of, you know, flying a, a fighter aircraft through enemy air, air defenses is hero, that's the definition of heroism. And then enduring years in a prisoner of war camp, John and I actually went to Hanoi together and to be with him in the Hanoi Hilton and to see how he, he could, could accept that yeah, after yeah, the yeah. abuse he took. And also to, to recognize that he was one of the key figures in recognizing Vietnam. When we were there, he was seen as, he was seen as a hero there. Which was remarkable. So it's, it's, it's just incredible. Uh, you yeah. know, but his legacy will move on. He, he is truly an American hero in the greatest sense oh, absolutely. of, the, of absolutely. the word. So the future. You're a ranking member on the Transportation Appropriations yes. Subcommittee. Um, do you see an infrastructural bill? I don't see an infrastructure bill, frankly. Um, the, the budget the president set up is absolutely uh, unacceptable. It cuts them, particularly the transit programs. And then... The highway funding is not particularly robust. Um, we really do have to have a, uh, a good highway bill. This past year, uh, working with Senator Collins of Maine, we put together a very good bill. It had significant increases in uh, funding for both highway, also some of the, the, the new build program, which is a, a discretionary program, put a lot of money in there for projects. Uh, and then also we took care of transit issues, which are critical to the Northeast, sure. both Amtrak and the MBTA. And, in fact, uh, Rhode Island, Providence, I think, is one of the, the second biggest station on the MBTA line now. So it's we, we have a shared sort of uh, yeah. and value in yeah. terms of uh, mass transit. But we have to do much better. And, uh, and on the housing front, the critical programs like community development block grant, the president zeroed that out. Yes. He tried that last year, and it didn't work because my Republican colleagues objected, as well as Democratic colleagues. But we have our work cut out for us. One of our problems is we do not yet have a um, change to the Budget Control Act of 2010. And until we alter that, we're subject to these caps. Right. And those caps are just unacceptable. They, everyone agrees that they're unacceptable. And they're limiting as well, which means that there won't be an infrastructural bill this year in your, in your view. Unless you really raise the caps dramatically, you mm-hmm. can't do an infrastructure bill. What I hope we can do is, at a minimum is what we did last year is raise the, uh, the spending on uh, the traditional appropriations bill for transportation and get more projects. One example we did, again, working collectively with my colleagues, we put in a, uh, a bridge program, and we identified the critical states that had the worst bridge problems and were able to provide additional money just for bridge work. But you go around in every state, Massachusetts as well as Rhode Island and the rest of New England, and we've got bridges that are just in terrible condition. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, if you don't fix them, it affects the economy, it affects public safety, you can't get a fire trucks over a bridge to get to a fire because the bridge is so old and so antiquated. You know, there are eight feet of bridges and feeding into the city of Boston. Yes. Six of them are, are in drastic disrepair. Six of them. Uh, exactly. And, and limits traffic. 
Uh, it's it's too much too much of a burden for the the state itself to do, but they have to be participants. Right. It has to be shared, but we have to put our share up too. And the other also the other thing about an infrastructure bill, which is it puts people to work. You know, good, you're, good job. You're you're ranking member on banking and, and housing. You're a ranking member on that. Well, you're the you're chair of the subcommittee on on transportation appropriations. Appropriations, yes. And you're, you're the ranking member on armed services. There isn't anything in New England you don't touch. Well, we have a lot. A lot to do with with uh, New England uh, in terms of, you know, we we have some tremendous defense assets here. In, in my state, we have the Newport Navy base. We were there yesterday, actually visiting family housing because we have a problem mm-hmm. with family housing yes. that we're, we're addressing. We've got the the private companies are all understand they have to do better, and then we're working with the Department of Defense on all the services. Because, you know, we can't send young men and women off overseas and have their families in quarters that are not adequate that we wouldn't live in. So I was there yesterday doing that. But then we've got a tremendous research infrastructure, particularly here in Massachusetts, Lincoln Laboratories, uh, the whole MIT, Harvard complex and Boston University, a lot of defense dollars going into there. And it's critical because some of the challenges we face, you know, new Weapons, new techniques. One is, of course, uh, you know, cyber, which is uh, becoming an, a huge dimension of, of potential conflict, and space, and of course, here with MIT, with Harvard, and then down in Rhode with Brown, et cetera. That's going to be a lot of research and development. We've got to re- revamp totally our our command and control system for our nu- nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. That again is something that. Our research laboratories like Lincoln and the universities are going to be parties to. The one good aspect of the president's budget is the research and development and scientific money in the DOD line is significant, so we can do that. That's terrific. A pleasure to have you here in Massachusetts. We don't get you often enough. Well, Tommy, you've, you and your family have served this commonwealth and this country with such grace and distinction. Um, your father, yourself, your your whole family, it's an honor to be with you. And, uh, you know, you're one of the examples that I look to, and your dad particularly for principled, decent leadership that doesn't forget. You don't only agree leader, guy. you're a kind man. <laughs> <laughs> well, kindness counts. <laughs> kindness always counts. Thanks a million. Thanks, Tommy. Yep. Thanks again to Senator Jack Reed for joining us. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, SoundCloud, or iTunes, or whatever your favorite listening platform is. You can also get more OA On Air on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.